Today's episode has been brought to you by the Veterans Association Food Bank in Calgary, Alberta, serving veterans, veterans helping veterans. The Veterans Association Food Bank. Please donate today. Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are live streaming on Facebook and LinkedIn. Thanks for being here, brother. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, you bet. Uh, let's start with something that's a little less intrusive. We yeah. we met at the Veterans Association uh, Food Bank, met there for the 11 Days of Remembrance. What was that like for you, being one of the 11 veterans that was chosen to be on that for CTV? Well, it's an absolute honor. I, uh, you know, I've, I've been working with uh, Marie Blackburn for many years before uh, before they moved over to the new Veterans Association Food Bank and previously with the Poppy Fund and, and Calgary Food Bank. So, or Calgary Veterans Food Bank, pardon me. So I've been, uh, I've, I've known her for six, seven years and it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it was an honor for her to call me and say, hey, listen, would you, would you help participate? You've been volunteering at uh, that food bank for some time and yeah. at the Poppy Fund before that. Correct. Yeah, many years. So what sort of volunteer work have you been doing? Well, you know, it, it started out, I think it was around t- 2012, um, and like many veterans, I was finding a way just to to find a purpose and and give back, and it, and it was a challenge for me. So, so I reached out and didn't know who to reach out to, and you know, and and I wrote to the uh, to the Calgary Veterans Food Bank, and Marie Blackburn answered me. I think it was within an hour, <laughs> and said, uh, "Get down here, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll meet with you." So uh, so I did, and and you know, it just started out with me picking up food, and you know, every. Uh, Every weekend, I'd pick up food. I'd take my first two weeks of holidays every year, at, you know, just before Remembrance Day, and, and go pick up food and and take it back. So it was uh, it was good, and that, that's what I did for uh, for volunteering for several years. And how does volunteering affect your life personally? Well, you know, it, it keeps me grounded. You know, I think I think when you look back at you know at, at the service we both did, and and and, and you think about you know, um, service to others. You know, there's a, there's a famous saying by Winston Churchill, you know, we make a, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. And, uh, and that's always resonated with me that, you know, we just keep giving back. And you think about the military and about our service. And the first thing you see when, when you join the military or, you know, at CP Cornwallis is learn to serve. And that's the, uh, that's the sign right above the, uh, the entrance. So, so for me, you know, volunteering, even, uh, even seeing yourself and others at the Veterans Association a couple of weeks ago, I don't know about you, but I come away from that feeling, you know, uh, stronger, you know, like, uh, like it's, it's important to, to be there. Believe it or not, and you'll probably will believe it, but I've heard people say things like, we don't need a veterans food bank. There's no need for that. Veterans mm-hmm. are, and I think this is almost a direct quote, veterans are improvised, adapt, and overcome, so they just... Uh, you know, there's no excuse for a veteran using a food bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> What's your response to that? Well, I, you know, I think, I, I think it's, it's, it goes back to who veterans are and what the military teaches us is that we serve others. You know, I've known many veterans who said, listen, I don't know how to ask for help. I've written resumes for multiple, multiple veterans and LinkedIn profiles. And they said, listen, I don't know how to apply for a job. I've never been an individual. I don't know how to ask for help. Um, so when I, you know, when, when, when I, I think about, you know, the association that we're both, uh, you know, supporters of, um, this is an opportunity for, you know, veterans to get together and help each other. So nobody really understands what a veteran needs more than a veteran. Right. And, and so, you know, do we need a food bank? Absolutely. For the veterans, because I don't know, you know, when we were with this before, um, I don't know of a veteran that goes down to a regular food bank and asks for help. You know, they almost have to be sought after and found, um, you know, to uh, to give that help to. Uh, an example of this is I've heard people talk about, say, the PTSD claim, because there is a monetary award that comes with that, which I didn't know when right. I made the claim. So there's people that 
are of the opinion that there are people faking PTSD just uh, so that they can get a little bit of a payout. Right. What I'm finding, and I'd like your two bits on it, that in both cases, both those that reach out for the food bank and those that uh, put in for some sort of a claim, Mm -hmm. there might be the odd person that is there and doesn't really need to be. That may be true occasionally. But at about a 100 to 1 ratio, from my experience, it's the other way around. There's people that should be asking for help and simply are not. They will not. A friend of mine that uh, served a long, long time ago, I've watched him starve. And I didn't know he was starving until I went for a visit and saw that it was Mother Hubbard's cupboard. Mm -hmm. There was nothing there, nothing in the fridge, and he was gaunt and skinny. He was literally starving to death instead of asking for help. And that's what I see more often. Right. What's your opinion? Well, I, I completely agree. I, I, I think it doesn't matter what your social status is. You know, I think for, even for myself, you know, I've been, you know, very fortunate and successful since I've left the military. You know, I've had a great career. But the reason I reached out to the Veterans Food Bank and to Marie several years ago is because I was finding myself in this dark place by myself. And I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know how to reach out. Um, and it was important, you know, for, for me to kind of get grounded and get back to that. But I think, I've, you know, many veterans that we, that we serve today and, and that we help out, um, they're not going to ask for help because they think, listen, there's people out there that need it more than we do. So your example of, of the veteran, you know, with an empty cupboard, you know, I, I would be willing to bet that he's thinking, well, there's somebody else worse off out there that's that, right. can, that can use it more than I can. And, and so that's even, you know, that, that's even more reason why we should be doing what we're doing and supporting those that really need it. When you first reached out for help, right. was that an easy thing to do? Uh, it, it wasn't. You know, I, I, I thought I had everything under control. You know, and this is, you know, going to open me up a little bit, but... Um, you know, I think I spent many, many years and, you know, thank God I've got a wonderful wife who, who's been there with me for, you know, 30 years now. Um, but I, I just like every single night was the same thing. It was the same dreams. It was the same memories. It was the same horrific images um, that, you know, I got to the point where, you know, I, I literally could not fall asleep unless I took several drinks yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's, we hear that from a lot of veterans. That's and a common one. It's a common one. And that was the only way to, you know, stop the mind from thinking, you know, as you tried to, tried to fall asleep. So I, um, you know, I, I just got to the point where I just said, listen, I've got to do something. You know, again, I was doing well in my, in, you know, the civilian world in my, in my career. Um, but I was missing something. And for me, what it was missing was giving back and serving those that were actually worse off than I was. You know, and, and that's, that's, you know, it wasn't easy at the time, but, you know, it was, it was the, probably one of the best things I've ever done. I have uh, preached that exact thing, I don't even know how many times mm-hmm. on the show, that once you leave the big green machine or the big blue machine or the big wet machine, whichever uh, right. branch of service that you're in, uh, it is, that leaves a big gap in your life because you go from being part of something really big and important and yeah. cool and groovy and juicy and high speed, low drag to the rest of the world, yeah, to absolutely. the civilian life. And it's a big gap. And that's why so many people hang on to their veterans identity. Mm-hmm. You know, every, everything is about their past, you know, everywhere you look, uh, the clothes they wear, the, the, the what's on their walls, because they're hanging on to that sense of purpose that was instead of finding new purpose yeah. in what is. And the best way is to continue to serve, whether it be volunteer or you find a career in service, mm-hmm. but a, a way to give back that gives you that purpose, that sense of contribution, like you're part of something important again. Mm-hmm. And that is so important uh, to help avoid depression and uh, hopelessness and nihilism. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's critical. Is I, it, is that, uh, for you? Absolutely. I, I used to say, and this was, you know, I've, I've stopped saying this over the, over the past few years, but you know, the best decision I ever made in my life was joining the military. The worst decision I ever made in my life was leaving the military, mm. you know? And, and I think you can talk to many, many veterans that get out at a certain time 
And, and they, you know, at the time I got out because I knew I had to, you know, I mean, mentally I couldn't do it anymore. And mm. I just, you know, there was, there was just the fear and, you know, and there's just all these regrets that you have after, but, but leaving the military was the, one of the toughest things I've ever done. And, and I regretted it for so many years. And it wasn't until I started volunteering and supporting other veterans that, you know, it, it, it you know, I realized that there was other people that were feeling the same thing that, you know, they, they just had that void. You know, I wrote a resume for a veteran, highly decorated. He was an instructor. He did, he was just a great career, you know, multiple medals. And he didn't know how to promote himself. He just said, well, I've never done anything for myself, you know. So it was, it was, um, it was interesting to help him and interesting to now step back and see, listen, there's other people that need my help. Um, and this is what I'm going to be doing. One of the most common misconceptions, and I hear it, and it's a very strongly held defeatist belief is that um, people that served don't see themselves as having transferable skills, especially if they were combat arms. Right. You know, um, like what's my trans transferable skill? What they're missing out is <laughs> if you're not early or late, that's a skill. You know, it, it's the principles, it's the character that has a great deal of value in, in the job market a character that uh, is hard fought to create. Right. You know, um, if we look back at when we went through, not everybody made it. We're the ones that made it. We're the ones that made it through the training, that made it to our unit, and uh, it made it all the way to an honorable discharge at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we did it. And that type of stick to itness. And the ability to improvise, adapt, and overcome, that is the value in the job market. And too many don't understand that. It's why so many um, veterans become such great entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. because they use those same skills to improvise, adapt, and overcome, and um, to push through, to set a goal, to achieve it no matter what. That is fantastic for entrepreneurism, but uh, makes it a little bit difficult. Those that in in the job world... Uh, I hear the same stuff all the time. They are upset that others do not have the same work ethic as them, and they really take it to heart. Uh, they have trouble letting that go. They do. They do, but I tell you, you hire a veteran, you're not going to find a harder, more loyal team member um, to help grow that team than, than you know somebody that's served in the military. It's, it, it's an incredible thing. You know, We've hired veterans in, in my career, um, and, and again, you won't find a harder worker and they lead by example and other people will follow them because they see how hard they work and how loyal they are. Unless they were Air Force. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> That's right. Sorry, my uh, blue friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, tell me about the trade that you were in in the military. You were a combat engineer. Yeah, combat engineer. So we... Uh, I served with, uh, and you've probably heard this before, but the uh, the greatest regiment in the world, one CER out of Chilliwack. One no, never heard regiment. that. Um, greatest, greatest bunch of uh, men and women that I could have ever ever known, and and uh, and so proud to call them brothers and sisters, and you know, just uh, an incredible group of people. Um, and still, we see each other today and talk and and boost each other up and take care of each other, but. Uh, served in Chilliwack. I was stationed at Chilliwack, and then um, I did overseas mission in in Iraq and Kuwait. And for for be, before we get into that, sure. be, for our civilian audience, sure. Um, what's a combat engineer? What do they do? Uh, oh, yeah, that's good. I should break it down. Um, so it's it's demolitions, it's bridge construction, so multifaceted in the Canadian military. So it's uh, you know everything to have to do with um, you know sort of that that demolitions, landmines, detection, booby traps, uh, bridge building. A tear down that thing. Um, you really, I, I think the engineers are, you know, the most versatile and, and you know, probably mind sweeping. Mind sweeping, absolutely. Yeah. That's the first one that comes to my mind because that's one I care about the most with you guys. That's right. So mind sweeping, and you know, we did a lot of a uh, lot of demolitions, and you know, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of different training in in different parts of the world when I was in there. Now let's talk about your tours. Where'd you go? Uh, so we were in. Uh, I was with one uh, CR in Iraq and Kuwait. And we were part of uh, the initial deployment. It was really quite interesting. We went to um, we went uh, to Kuwait during the just after the first Gulf War, so part of the United Nations uh, bomb disposal. So really clearing the DMZ. Uh, so is that like ninety one? 
correct. Yeah, yeah, 91. Uh, clear in the DMZ with Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. Demilitarized zone, DMZ. Correct. correct. Yeah, so I was, um, you know, there was a small part. A, a big part of the regiment would, a uh, big part of the regiment moved out to uh, to the DMZ, and I was, I moved north into uh, into a small town in Iraq uh, called Umkasar. So that was a, a town in which we were stationed. We were converting the old hospital into a UN headquarters. So right embedded, right in the middle of the town, and that's where I spent the better part of my, you know, my tour over there. At what point did you realize that your tours had done some damage to you? Um, you know, I I don't think Mark. I don't think it was until I got home. It it was it was really interesting. I remember returning to Canada, and I remember returning and seeing you know just the freedom here and and everything else, and it was. I had a really hard time. Um, I had a really hard time reconciling what I saw, and the horrors and the death, and you know, and just just the the, the way in which the, the you know the good people were were affected by the war over there, especially the children. Um, that it just, I, I, you know, I, I think the longer I I went when I got home, the the more it started to affect me and the more it's just I, I couldn't get some images out of my head i couldn't get smells out of my head i couldn't get you know it just seemed to play it was i i would tell somebody that you know i just keep hitting re, you know rewind every night i go to bed it was the same thing every single night and 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 for me um that's what drove me out of the military is is i said listen i can't do this again i i can't i can't experience that again and then you get out of the military and then you realize there's there's nobody else out here that has gone through what you've gone through. So you've left behind, you know, the men that were there with you. Um, and so you, all of a sudden you're, you know, you're stuck with your own memories and then they just, you know, they just get louder and louder and louder. Right. And that's, and that's sort of where I was for better part of 15 years. Well, and you don't want to talk about it, which isolates you. And those that, um, also went through it and maybe having a similar experience, don't know how to talk about it, don't want to admit it in themselves, so you're alone. Yeah, and you know, I, I opened myself up once. I, I remember this. It was, you know, a few years after I'd left, and I opened myself up, and I, I remember telling somebody something brief about, you know, what I saw in Iraq and something that happened to a child. Um, and it wasn't that they were dismissive. It's just that they went, you know, and then, oh, you know, then they, they were able to say, well, my grandpa went through something similar or something. And, you know, and, and again, it wasn't, it wasn't to be dis, disrespectful or dismissive, but. But that's um, what it was, just not, not on purpose. Not on purpose. And then, and then you realize that, listen, I, I you know, I'm just not going to share this stuff because I, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't want somebody to ask me questions that I don't want to answer. And I certainly don't want, um, I don't want to put anybody, make anybody feel uncomfortable, you know, because it, uh. You know, it's something that we, we all signed up for. We all signed up to do this, right? And, uh, you know, so if, uh, you know, if you have to experience something, and, and I thought this for many years, if I had to experience something, I'm going to do it, and, you know, I'll just keep it inside, right? And uh, and that's sort of where I was at. Anybody ever uh, ask you, you ever kill anybody? Absolutely. How many times do you think you've got that one? Um, yeah, you know, half a dozen or so, maybe yeah. less. Um you know, and it's, again, it's usually joking and thinking that it's, you know, something that's, but, you know, it's, it's tough. It's, yeah. it's tough. It's tough being asked things like that because there are people out there that actually have had to do that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I feel for them. Buddy of mine who, he was a door gunner in Afghanistan. So, you know, the answer to that question. Yeah. And uh, once he was asked it, his response was, what's your favorite sexual position with your wife? Mm. and like what the hell yeah <laughs> well that's what you're asking me right you know in a flippant way you're asking me something even more personal than what i just asked you yeah you yeah. know yeah and, and you know i i can tell you if there's anybody that needs our support it's 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 our uh, afghanistan veterans you know this is uh you know what they're going through and what they're going through now you know i, I can only imagine so you know I, I think that's why i do what i do today uh volunteering it's because I'm further uh, disconnected from it that I can I can offer that support. I just saw a video today with Kelsey Sharon. Uh, she's an Afghanistan veteran. She was artillery and uh, five foot fuck all artillery girl, and she was trying to get a family out. Last flight went out today. Wow, they weren't on it. Mm. 
including kids. So they're going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's no way around it, no way to sugarcoat it. They're not going to survive. They will be killed by the Taliban at some point, including the kids. Yeah. And uh, she's been up late at night, around the clock, trying to get them out. And uh, most Canadians don't even know that that's happening, mm-hmm. that, that we have allies over there right now that are abandoned. And they're not getting out. They're, they're dead. And including Canadian citizens. Yeah, I, I, I can tell you some of the most painful memories I have are the, are the children and the women that we left behind in Iraq. You know, and it was a completely different mission. But I feel the pain that the veterans of Afghanistan feel. Because you, you, these are people that helped us. These are people that, you know, that would have given their lives. Um, and we've left them behind. It's, it's, it's incredibly sad. In Croatia, some of the guys came home with dogs mm-hmm. to save the dog. Because they knew that as soon as we left, that dog was screwed. Yeah. There's no small expense in getting a dog from a war zone back to Canada. No. But people did it mm-hmm. for a dog. And we're not doing it for our own citizens. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I think there, uh, I think the voices of those who served in Afghanistan need to be heard and, and, uh, and we need to do everything we can to get those people out of there. We do. And how to put that pressure on, I don't even know. Yeah. I don't even know how to do that. And, and I'm friends with, uh, with my MP and my MLA, but that's not their portfolio. Uh, I'm going to give John Barlow a call anyway. Mm-hmm. And, uh, see if there's something that can be done because the last plane has left. Mm-hmm. There's still people there. And uh, we're all so distracted with things that are happening in the States that uh, where's the outrage? People have been abandoned. Where is the outrage? Yeah. Government sure doesn't care. Yeah. Well, I, I think we put some Afghanistan veterans on the board and, and let them make the decisions and let them call the shots. And, you know, we get those people out of there. Yeah. And where's the, uh, the billionaire, um, the bar- the billionaire class to, to hire a group of us that, uh, have the ability to go, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. it's like suit up. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, give me a few weeks of jogging first, maybe, Yeah, but no, I'll go right now. And, um, but better yet, the, the people with ac- actual Afghanistan experience. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd still go. I wouldn't know what the hell I'm doing, but I'd go. In a heartbeat. Yeah, in a heartbeat. For yeah. sure I would. Mm-hmm. Um, what brought us together today is we have we have some history together that we didn't know about. Mm-hmm. You were uh, friends with Marcus Feld. I was, yeah. Tell me about him. So um, Mark... Um Engineer with one CER, um, one of the more highly trained engineers I've known. I remember small in stature as a man, but but um, highly respected and, and just such a such a strong um, leader um, and incredibly knowledgeable. You know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to go into a minefield and know that you were safe, you, you know, you follow behind Mark Isfeld. This is a soldier that um, committed everything and gave everything, and. Uh, you know, I was so honored to serve with him. I remember, um, you know, just, just things about him and things about his family. And, you know, when we got back from Iraq and Kuwait, his mother, Carol, had uh, had made a coffee cup for everybody or anybody that wanted a coffee cup. So I've got it at home and it's, you know, it's got the tour on it and it's got her signature on it and everything else. And this is this is Mark and this was, was who his family was. It was um, just incredible people. Yeah, so um, you know, it, w- it was great to serve with him overseas, and it was great to serve with him at One CR, and you know, all our deployments wherever we were. What happened uh, that you weren't on the same tour as him when he died? So um, now this is a tough one. This is I um, I remember I was with my wife. We we had just gotten married at the time, and and you know, I just you know, I, I had a breakdown. I just said, I can't go. I can't do this. Um, you know, and I, I felt such shame for so many years. You know, um, I abandoned the guys that I loved the most. You know, I, I abandoned Mark. Um, I don't know. I probably couldn't have done anything anyways, right? But because he was, again, he is the most highly trained engineer I knew. Um, you know, there's a lot of them, but, but Mark was up there, right? I'm certainly a much better soldier than I was. 
um, and, and, and more courageous. Um, so, so I, you know, I left the military, you know, I think soon after or around then, um, in the mid nineties and, and, you know, and, and I carry, I've carried this for, you know, for so many years that, you know, I should have been with my regiment. Um, and again, that's part of the regret that a lot of us feel when we leave is, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda, right? Should we have stayed in? Should we have been there? Um, so I wasn't there. When Afghanistan started, I knew that I was cooked. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I had PTSD, but I knew that my cup was full right. and that I couldn't do it anymore. And that same sense, though, of, oh, man, I want to have buddy six. Right. I want to cover your six. Yeah, I get that. I think most do. Mm-hmm. You know, I did consider re-upping, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, if you had more, you'd give more. You did the right thing. And uh, I don't know how many people have told you about any of the details of that tour that uh, is felt was on, that I was on, mm-hmm. but it was a good one to miss. It was, um, there was more PTSD from that tour than a lot of others. Not because of the bombs and the bullets, because of the leadership, because of how we were treated by our own people. It was atrocious. And people are still angry today, uh, telling the stories, like vibrating angry at some of the stuff that was done to us um, because of the leadership on that tour. So it was a very good one to miss, Mm. for sure. And everything happens for a reason as Mm. well. It really does. I, and I know it sounds like a bumper sticker, but I believe that deeply. I, I do too. I, I absolutely do. I, I don't think I'd be where I am today if not for missing that tour, if not for, you know, um, sort of getting out when I did, right? Um, but again, it, 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 I think I've come to, um, come to grips with it and I've, you know, I've, I've accepted it but, it, but it has been, it was a difficult time in my life. Absolutely. Especially when, you know, when, when I found out that he died and, um, you know, and that, uh, you know, my, my fellow brothers were there um, with him, uh, yourself included. It, uh, you know, it gives me some comfort. Yeah, a friend of mine was holding the stretcher mm. and carried him from the helicopter to the uh, mess tent. The name of the town was Reykjavik, um, uh, Rastavik. Reykjavik's in Iceland. Uh, it was Rastavik. Mm-hmm. And where they were was by this water tower. Mm-hmm. is where they, they were doing the op. And the day before, that area was cleared. Then during the night, it was remined. And that's how he died. Because um, people came in in the dead of night and set up the trip wires and whatnot. And, um, and that was after it was already cleared. I watched that helicopter come in and it was kind of like mash with radar O'Reilly. Like everybody knew the chopper was coming. Everybody knew that there was a couple of engineers on it. A lot of people knew who uh, Izzy was. I didn't, I'd never um, had the honor of meeting him, but I was at the end of the mod tent of the mess tent, watching the helicopter come in, watching it land, watching the chaos and everybody going, Holy shit. And, and uh, him and one other getting pulled off with the IV bags the whole nine yards. And um, that was the last moments of his life. And I witnessed them. Mm-hmm. A lot of us did. It was, it was Rastovic, so it was the head camp is where headquarters was. But he definitely wasn't alone. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. So even at that time people were talking about the Izzy dolls. How how did that get started? What's the story of the Izzy dolls? So, so so I'm just going to back up a little bit to Iraq. So Mark was always a giving person. Um, You know, he wanted to ease the suffering of the children he met along the way. And he would, you know, hand out hard candy. Um, I remember doing that, uh, you know, in Iraq and, and we would do that. And and I think he said something to somebody didn't have anything. It goes, you must have some hard candy on you. And, um, so we did that because we knew giving anything else to the children would likely mean that they'd get hurt. You know, there'd be a riot. Um, but Mark was Mark was overseas on that mission, and and 
and he saw what he thought was a child on top of a, a pile of rubble. And as he got closer, he realized it was a doll. And so he had reached out to his mother and said, you know, a child is, is without her doll. And, uh, and, uh, and Mrs. Isfeld um, started knitting these little dolls, right, um, so that Mark could hand them out to children that he met along the way. Um, again, through the form, this is what she did, right? She made the, the coffee cup, the coffee cups part of me and sent to big care packages and everything else. But, and so she would, he would hand out these Izzy dolls. Um, and they weren't called Izzy dolls at the time, I think. And it wasn't until his death and, you know, the, his engineers and, you know, um, had reached out to his mother and said, Hey, listen, can you keep knitting them? And then they were called Izzy dolls. Um, and they would be handed out to children that they met along the way. And, and, um, you know, I, it, it's an incredible story because since, since his death, nearly 1.5 million Izzy dolls have been knitted. I would call them the army of knitters, right? Um, seniors homes. And I visited them and, 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 you know, you know, and I'll tell you a bit more about that. Um, but these are people that are knitting these Izzy dolls so they can be given to soldiers and handed out to children around the world, you know, in, in war zones or, or natural disasters or things like that. So it's an incredible legacy. And how widespread is this? Is it, um, is it gone beyond Canada as far as the people that are making these Izzy dolls? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's knitters and seniors homes. I've heard of Australia and other places. And, you know, it's incredible. It's incredible. And, and you know, I want to I tell you about, um, you know, some of the people that are doing it. You know, we have uh, Mrs. Shirley O'Connell, you know, and... Uh, and she's one of the greatest ladies I've ever met in my life. And they call her the Izzy doll mama. So since, since Mrs. Isfeld's death in, I think it was 2006, 2007, um, Shirley has been knitting these Izzy dolls. Tens of thousands of Izzy dolls have gone through her house in Perth, Ontario. And she's just, she's an incredible lady. And I've spent some time with her and had lunch with her. And, you know, um, you know, and, and, and she's just been doing an incredible job. So, you know, and then um, you know, we have all sorts of people like that that are just, they're just doing this, and and again, the Izzy doll for anybody not not aware, they're, they're just small. They're 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 yarn, um, and they're really you know three four inches tall. They're, you know, there's the exact I don't have the exact dimensions, but um, but they're supposed to be folded. and They fit in the side pocket of your combat pants. So so as a soldier goes by, they just pop up and they come back to life and hand them to a child. So it's it's an incredible story. <clears throat> Pardon me, but it wasn't until I think it was 2016. So I'd been volunteering with the Veterans Food Bank, you know. So Marie Blackburn, again, this beautiful lady, um, was bringing me in and, and letting me pick up food. Um, and so I was going and I was picking up food, and she sent me to this one center. And she says, "Well, I, I don't really have a pickup, so I'm just going to send you here." Um, and so I get to this senior center, and this is here in Northwest Calgary. And I walk in the front door, and there's a lady behind the counter, and and um, and she points to the food. I said, I'm here to pick up the food. And then she looks at me, says, she, and I'll never forget this. She goes, son, are you a veteran? I said, yes, ma'am, I am. And, 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 she, and then, you know, this is, uh, as God is my witness, I said nothing else to her. She goes, I want to tell you the story about a soldier who was handing out these dolls. And she tells me this story. And, and I'm standing in the lobby of this senior center, and tears are flowing down my cheek. And she has no idea who I am or my connection to Mark or 1CR or anything else. And, and she tells me this story, and it's just so comforting. And she comes over, and she says, would you like an Izzy doll? Right? Um, and so she hands me the Izzy doll. And I, uh, again, I sat there. I picked up the food. I sat in my car. I was in the parking lot. I was calling my wife. I think I must have been there for an hour or an hour and a half. Um, Missed the, missed the rest of my pickups. Um, <laughs> but I went back and, uh, and I told Marie, and I said, Marie, the most incredible thing happened. And so I told her the story of Mark Isfeld and his mother and the Izzy doll. And, and uh, she goes, I wasn't even going to send you there. Um, and so I, I was just, it, it, was a, it was the most incredible thing that had ever happened. You know, and this, I think, for me was the closure. And, you know, it's, you know, whether, you know, it's a, sort of uh, Mark's way of telling me that everything was okay. I don't know. I don't know if it was a strange coincidence. There's a couple more things that have happened though. So I get, I get the doll. Um, everything's fine. I reached out and I didn't know that Mark's mother had passed. And so um, she had passed, so I couldn't find her. So this is where I found uh, Mrs. O'Connell, Shirley. 
And I sent her the letter and I had to tell somebody. So I sent her the letter of what had happened. And she said, that's the most incredible thing ever. Because right? she's been knitting these Izzy dolls. She then introduces me to Phyllis Wheaton. Now, Phyllis Wheaton um, is an incredible songwriter, artist, um, author. And she wrote um, In the Mood for Peace, the story of the Izzy doll. And so I went and I spent hours with, with Phyllis. Um, and we talked about, um, about what brought her into the story and what brought her um, to the Izzy doll. She was actually... Um, in 2006, I believe it was, at the Calgary War Museum and saw an Izzy doll and had to figure out what that Izzy doll was about. So she did some research. She then got in touch with uh, with Brian Isfeld, Mark's father. Uh, he came to Calgary, gave her a bunch of information about Mark and the story, and then she wrote this story. Uh, and it's an incredible... Does his father live in Calgary? No, no, they were, I believe they were on the island. Okay. Um, he had, he'd passed away... Um, uh, back as soon after after Phyllis met with him, um, but now she's written stories about or songs about the Izzy doll, and you know the story about the Izzy doll, and um, and so as the more we got to talking, um, this was I think this was in yeah, this would have been November of 2015 because 2016 was our reunion. CFB Edmonton was hosting one CER, the engineers, the old guard um, that had served in Iraq. And uh, they were they were hosting us, so um, I told Phyllis and Shirley this, and and true to form, these these two incredible ladies um, loaded up my truck with the books in the mood for peace, um, you know, the Issy doll. Um, so I was able to give a copy of that book to every single engineer that served with Mark. Wow! And that was I, I got to tell you that was one of the most incredible moments because I. You know, I was handing them out. I've got the photos with all the guys I serve with, and you could just see what what that meant to them, right? So, so Phyllis, you know, donated all these books because she wanted um, the engineers that served with Mark to find some comfort and peace. And there's a school on the island named after him. There is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do they call it Mark Isfeld School? Or they do, yeah, yeah. they do, yeah. So it was named after Mark. Uh, the statue in Peacekeeper Park here in Calgary is a statue of Mark handing an Izzy doll. Um, to a child. Where's Peacekeeper Park? Uh, down at the old garrison. Uh, okay. Yeah, so you have to go down and take a look at that. But it's... Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, Peacekeeper Park right down in garrison. In, uh, so there's a statue of Mark, bronze statue, beautiful statue. Um, of not, not at the Museum of the Regiments then? No. No. No, no. It, uh, yeah, it's a Peacekeeper Park. It's sort of that roundabout uh, a, a garrison, I believe it is, North Glenmore. Um, so so we, we did that. We handed out the books. Um Everything else. Um, a couple more quick things here, Mark. Um, so Mark was able to reach out and get his brothers a copy of that book. Um, and then some of the guys from the regiment were able to reach out to Shirley as well. We got some Izzy dolls. Um, so we're, we're, we're getting them more. Four months later, I'm in Vancouver. I drove my wife and kids there. And I had to, I had to be in Toronto for a business meeting the following Monday. So it's, you know, I was flying out on a, on a Sunday morning, I think it was. I never fly out of Vancouver to Toronto. It's always Calgary to Toronto. Um, I'm sitting on the plane, and I, there's one middle seat left. And this lady comes, and uh, and she, you know, she sits and she comes, and we get to talking, and she's all flustered because she was supposed to be on an earlier flight, and she's really disappointed. And then we got to talking about the military. I don't know how it was, and she said, you know, one of my brother's best friends was killed in the military. He was handing out dolls. Jesus. I swear to God, right? Um, so his name was Barry. And, uh, and Mark was... Mark was supposed to be Barry's best man. But Mark got called to boot camp. Um, so, so Lisa, the sister, she tells me this story. And, uh, and says that Barry's quite ill. So I wrote him a letter. And uh, got him a book. Izzy Ball, um, Phyllis's book, and uh, and an Izzy doll, and uh, I was able to mail those to him before he passed. So it's um, it's incredible. It's incredible the ways in which this is touching everybody, touching us, um, you know, and and the way that the story just keeps going, you know. So now what I try to focus on is is getting um, getting the story out there and keeping this alive. This is an incredible family. Um, Shirley and Phyllis are incredible people. 
Uh, the work that uh, Marie and her team are doing are incredible. So now what Shirley has done is she sent me a bunch of Izzy dolls. Um, and I have the books. So today, from the hands of Shirley O'Connell herself, your very own Izzy doll. And it's, uh, you'll, you'll see the card there. It's in memory of Mark Isfeld. And, um, and Phyllis's book. It's a pretty impressive beret on there. Isn't it? <laughs> it's folded correctly, too. Uh, in the Mood for Peace, uh, the story of the Izzy doll. So Phyllis's book as well. For, and it talks about post-traumatic stress and, 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 and the courage of the family. And there's so many great stories. And, and Phyllis has just done such a wonderful job with this book. So those are, uh, those are gifts from, uh, from us to you for, uh, for what you're doing. And, uh, and so what, that's, what, what, that's, that's a lot, Chris. Yeah, I knew you would. Uh, so what we try to do is, um, so you've, you notice we've got green beret Izzy dolls and blue beret Izzy dolls. So, so, um, so Shirley's just been so wonderful. So I was able to get some of these Izzy dolls out to, um, out to other veterans that are, you know, that are maybe needing a, needing a pick me up because they're, 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 I refer to mine that I have at home and I, I touch it all the time. It's, it's my comfort doll. It, it just keeps me grounded and, and when I feel that things are a little bit, uh, a little bit dark, I just grab my Izzy doll. Well, thank you. Um, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I watched the guy die. Mm-hmm. And knowing that his life has created such a legacy is... Um, just such an amazing thing. And it's the type of story, too, that we really need to focus on. Mm -hmm. When people are feeling unappreciated, unloved, or think about stories like this, you know, because it's not true. We are appreciated. This quilt that's on the table here, you may have guessed, is a quilt of valor Mm -hmm. that was awarded to me uh, years ago. And, I mean, they prefer that you wrap yourself up in it but uh, for comfort. But this is how it gives me comfort. Mm-hmm. And it's very functional. It's good for deadening sound. But this quilt of valor that was given to me was, as these dolls are, stitched by volunteers that care. Mm-hmm. That, as best as they can, understand... Um, the sacrifice that uh, veterans make, including those of us that lived, right? Right. It's not just the ones that passed. Somewhere around 2007-ish, I was at, um, I'm a Freemason, well, I was a Freemason. I haven't showed up in the lodge in about a decade, but um, it was a Remembrance Day ceremony at the lodge. I had my medals on. And um, somebody mentioned, yeah, my... uh, uh, Godson died in Croatia in 95, he said. And I said, oh, what's his name? He says, Mark Isfeld. I said, well, he didn't die in 95. He died in July of 94. Do I got the month right? Uh, June. June? Yeah. And uh, summer. Summer, yeah. <laughs> and um, that just I just kind of blurted it out. You know, uh, there was no filter. It just kind of fell out of me. And uh, always regretted that, you know, because he was kind of put out or, right. or whatever, and because it was a blurt, but it just fell out of me. But there was something about that meeting somebody that was his godfather, somebody that was that close to him. Um, I never forgot that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's passed away now, <laughs> so I can't take it back. But um, Isfeld affected the lives of a lot of people, uh, including those that have never met him. Mm -hmm. I've never met him. I did watch him pass, but I never met him. And, um, but he was loved and respected. Yeah. 
you know, you can, um, you can think this is just a, a strange, you know, bunch of circumstances or, you know, um, I, I think elsewise, you know, I think, um, you know, I think I'm here today, you know, because Mark put us in touch with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I was able to give Phyllis's books out because Mark wanted his brothers to have um, some comfort. You know, I think I sat next to Lisa on that plane because Mark wanted Barry to know that everything was okay. You know, so I, I don't, I don't know, but, um, but what I do know is that, um, I have been given a lot of good, uh, fortune since I've left the military and it's incumbent on me to, uh, to continue to help veterans. Um, so if it's given you an Izzy doll and, you know, some comfort, um, if it's somebody else that reaches out to me, then, uh, then, then we'll do that. But, uh, but this is, this is, this has given me a tremendous amount of sense of purpose, um, you know, you know, supporting those that I care about so much. It's such a meaningful way to continue to serve. I mean, not only are you um, honoring his memory, but because of the story, it's the story that makes the Izzy Dolls worth something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the story, and uh, thank God a book was was written oh, about it. That's just yeah. just incredible. Um, where does the author live? I'll totally invite her. It's here in Calgary. I, yeah. I was going to mention that to you. We'll have to get. Uh, we'll send Phyllis this, and uh, and uh, well, she's and you know, hopefully she can play uh, play some music for you. She's a beautiful artist, beautiful wow. voice. Um, you know, we we uh, we went to a senior center together in Canmore. Uh, a few years back, and so her and her band played some uh, some some Izzy Doll songs and some other songs that she's written, and uh, and I was able to tell the uh, the seniors who were needing Izzy Dolls about Mark and his family and and this incredible family and you know everybody associated with it, and you know um, it was it was just soon after that uh, that I met with Mark's brother actually Lee Isfeld, and and this was probably one of the the most incredible things is um, he knew some of the work that we had started to do and that I was helping out and. I don't know, but uh, but he said I want you to have this, and he gave me Mark's uh, UN lapel pin, um, and I was I said no, I, I can't accept this, Lee. This is uh, this is incredible. And he goes no, because you know I, I, you know you're going to keep the story alive, and uh, and we will. So it was it's incredible. So I I uh, I have uh, Mark's pin on my Izzy doll that's uh, proudly you know um, sitting on uh, on my memorial wall there. He's very much alive um, in the hearts, especially of all those that were there on that tour. Mm-hmm. Um, spoken of all the time. You know, we were lucky on that tour. There were only uh, two fatalities. Right. You know, uh, two still a lot, but given where we were and uh, uh, that environment, one of the most heavily mined areas in the world. Um, the engineers are the only trade that the infantry doesn't make fun of. <laughs> it's if you're an engineer, hats off to you. It's like, okay, you are one crazy SOB. Yeah. You know, uh, minesweeping is, at, <laughs> can't even imagine. I, well, I can't imagine because I've walked in minefields. Yeah. But uh, being the guy that diffuses them, um, it's, it's what keeps us, uh, uh, the infantry guys doing the patrols, it's what keeps us alive. So thanks for that. Well, I, I would say the same. I, you know, we uh, we did a tour in Norway with uh, with the Patricias, and never would never say a bad thing about them. <laughs> these these are guys that would uh, you know go out there in the freezing cold and think nothing of it. You know, just do their jobs. It was uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, the um, one patrol that we had to do was in Dobrovoda, translated good water, and uh, um, oh, it's a cleared route. Yeah, like six weeks ago, it's a cleared route. Yeah. And we had to leave the hard pack. So to translate for those that don't understand, uh, when you're in an insanely heavily mined area, you don't leave the pavement. Like you just you just don't. It's a real bad idea to leave the pavement because mm. it takes nothing at three in the morning to put in uh, some little anti-personnel mines. Little PMA3s are the ones I was always worried about because you can't tell that the ground's been disturbed. They're just you know, a little hockey puck and you're done. And uh, the Russians were supplying them. So there was a lot of them. 
And there was one patrol that we had to do where, and I found out all these years later, it was a black op. So we weren't even supposed to be doing it. It was outside of the UN mandate. But from the guy that actually wrote the orders is like, yeah, that was like dark gray. (laughs) We weren't supposed to be doing it because it was behind lines. Right. But uh, we'd leave the hard pack, go on, uh, walk on the dirt and the gravel to go behind Serb lines in their literal backyard at three in the morning to do these patrols uh, to make sure that they weren't um, uh, building up uh, defensive positions or offensive positions. And uh, it was also to let them know that we're on this and you're not getting anything past us. Mm -hmm. This is a demilitarized zone. It's staying that way. But to do it, we had to go (laughs) on uh, and piss them off walking on something that could very, very well be mined. Luckily, none of us blowed up, um, but my God, was it terrifying because we are all like, they're mad at us. You know, how hard would it be to throw in a couple of PMA3s? Right. And so you just grit your teeth waiting for your feet to fly off. Yeah. And uh, sure shit, the Royal Canadian Regiment took over for us. Within the first week, somebody had the leg blown off Wow. on that exact same patrol. Mm. You know, so they weren't unfounded fears. Yeah, it's a scary places, aren't they? You know, I, I'll, I'll never forget when we headed north past the highway to hell where all those thousands of cars that were blown up by, uh, you know, retreating Iraqi forces. Um, I'm just like, holy crap, where am I going? And so you just keep heading north into Iraq and you go, okay, this is real. You know, this, is, uh, this isn't training anymore. Um, yeah, so we're they, not in Wainwright or Suffield. We're not, no. So that's, uh, well, thank God I was attached to some really talented soldiers. So um, that kept us all safe. Well, brother, thank you for being here today, for sharing the Izzy story, and thank you for your service and your continued service. Likewise. This was a tough one. (laughs) You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast, for veterans, first responders, and their families. Today's episode has been brought to you by the Veterans Association Food Bank in Calgary, Alberta, serving veterans, veterans helping veterans. The Veterans Association Food Bank. Please donate today. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Now I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow and if there's an option there for rating please do so and this is why every time you click like leave a rating leave a comment what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast the help that you can't find doesn't help at all so help other people find this so that they can help themselves thank you thank you thank you and as always share share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring Thank you.